That psalm, Psalm 45, sings of the beauty of our bridegroom and king. The book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 and uh, reminds us that that king and bridegroom of whom we just sang is indeed none other than Christ the Lord, our king and heavenly bridegroom. That's who Psalm 45 sings of, and that's um, what we read of also in the song of songs. It's interesting even comparing the parallels between Psalm 45 and, and the Song of Songs, one of the last things Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote in his, one of his journals uh, before his death was an entry on the uh, beautiful parallels between those two passages and how the king of whom we sing in Psalm 45 is the same one of whom we read in the Song of Songs. Um, Song of Songs 1 verse 1 will be our, our text this morning, but I'd like to read first from Ephesians chapter 5, actually, verses 25 to 32, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And our main uh, text from this morning is from the Song of Songs, uh, just after Ecclesiastes, just before Isaiah. Read just the first verse, and uh, hope to give from that verse sort of an introductory a sermon to the book as a whole. I had the privilege of preaching ten sermons through the Song of Songs maybe two years ago. One of the highlights of, for me, uh, preaching, a beautiful book. But uh, Song of Songs 1, verse 1. It says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. A uh, song about marriage, which as we just read a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 5, is a mystery that refers to Christ and the church. That's uh, something that we need to keep in mind in studying a book like this, that it's more than just a biblical guide for dating. It's uh, more than a manual for the marriage bed. It's more than a romance novel, like we might read from Nicholas Sparks or a love song like we might hear on the radio, but this song is found in the Bible, which tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage itself is a mystery that speaks of the gospel. It speaks of the uh, beautiful mystery of union with Christ. And so as we open up this book, perhaps it's one that you've been um, maybe a bit hesitant to to study in the past, not knowing exactly what to make of it. Uh, my hope this morning is that I can at least 
uh, give you some uh, guiding principles for um, how to read this book. I think there are five opening uh, principles that we see in this opening verse, which uh, serves not only as a title to the book, but really as an introduction to the contents of this book as a whole. Five uh, principles or five points, if you're keeping uh, taking notes. Three of them uh, rather explicit in this verse, two of them implicit based on uh, where we find this song in the Bible. We see in this introductory verse and in the song's placement in the canon, first of all, this book is a song. Uh, second, that it is a scriptural song. Uh, third, it is a Solomonic song. Uh, fourth, it is a superlative song. In fact, the superlative song. And then fifth, it is a sapiential song. I'll, I'll explain what that means when we get to it. Five principles from this opening verse, uh, Song of Songs 1, verse 1. First, that it is a song. This um, tells us something about its, its literary genre. You don't uh, read the book of, of Revelation, for instance, the same way that you read the book of Judges. One is a, an historical narrative. The other is symbolic prophecy. You don't read an epistle like Romans or like Ephesians that we read from just a moment ago the same way that you read the Psalms. One is a letter. One is poetic. It's that poetic category that the Song of Songs falls into, which means that as we read this book, it's, it's not, first of all, a step-by-step -step manual for marriage, but it is a, a poem that's, that's speaking to, to our affections, to our imagination. It's, it's seeking to draw us in to the drama. We live in an age where uh, people want practical teaching. They want the preacher to, to tell them, what does this mean for me? And while we certainly want to get to that, if we neglect the poetic to get to the practical, then we end up misapplying. If we neglect or skip past the poetic to get to the practical, we end up misapplying. The Song of Songs is a song. It's not a scientific manual to instruct us on marital technique. It's a poem. It's not given, first of all, to inform either about Solomon himself or about us, but it's given to make us feel. They said it's, it's given to, to evoke the, the imagination, the, the affections, again, to draw us in to the drama. And he use that word drama intentionally because this book is not a collection of unrelated poems, but is a single uh, unified piece of literature where we're, we're drawn in to watch the story unfold from anticipation in the opening uh, one and a half chapters. Let him kiss me with the, the kisses of his mouth. There's this longing, this anticipation that uh, gives way eventually to consummation and then uh, later after that to conflict and then reconciliation. There is a plot to the poem. There, there's a shape to the drama. This is not like a greatest hits album or or a, a Christmas album where, where track one and track two and track five are all sort of unrelated, but, but rather this is like a ballad where verse one uh, feeds into verse two and verse two into verse three and, and so on. Notice in the title, the author calls it the singular song of songs. And so even though it's, it's poetry and not to be read as strict historical narrative, there is nevertheless symbolic progression like any good country song, there's something of an unfolding plot from beginning to end. 
And so if you were to, to read through this book, even this afternoon, if you were to, to read through its eight chapters, you would see in, in chapters one and two, in the beginning of, of chapter three, as I said, this, this um, longing and, and anticipation. And in chapter three, verses six through 11, what you find is the king arriving on his wedding day, leading then to his song of the bride in chapter 4, and then in uh, 4.16 to 5.1, the literary center of the book, the, the consummation of that marriage. And then, and then after that, um, those portions of the song that are set in, in the context of marriage in, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, with both its conflict and and reconciliation followed then by the uh, end of chapter 8 with a, a sort of summary in chapter 8 verses 8 to 14 teaching us the spiritual meaning of marriage and, and giving uh, some, some sort of final application. That's just kind of a broad overview of the book. There is symbolic progression. There's something of an unfolding plot, but at the same time this book is poetry. That's the, the first thing that we see in this opening verse. The Song of Songs is a song. But of course, it's different than the sort of song that you might compose today. It's different than the kind of music that you hear on the radio or the uh, poetic love songs that you might hear from songwriters today. And what makes it different is, of course, that this song is a scriptural song. This point is, is more implicit. We don't see this explicitly stated in 1 verse 1, but we see it in the fact that verse 1 is part of a book that's in the Bible. The Bible, whose overarching theme, whose, whose overarching narrative begins in Genesis chapter 2 with a marriage and then ends in uh, Revelation 19 with a marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. With those final words at the very end of the Bible, we heard in our call to worship from Revelation 22, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Right between those two bookends, we have imagery in the prophets of God being the bridegroom of his people. You think of the, the whole book of Hosea, places in Jeremiah or Isaiah. You have a place like Ezekiel chapter 16 or of, of places like Psalm 45 that we sang from just a moment ago. And then we come to the New Testament. We meet Christ, who is presented in Matthew chapter 9 as a bridegroom. Remember that place where Jesus is feasting with sinners? This is just after he's called Levi. Now he's, he's feasting in, in Levi, Matthew's house, with sinners and tax collectors. And he's asked, why are you, you feasting and not fasting? And why are you, you drinking wine? And, and Jesus says it would not be right for the friends of the bridegroom to fast while the bridegroom is here with them. He's identifying himself as the bridegroom. An interesting thing for him to say against all of that Old Testament backdrop of God as the bridegroom of his people. As we progress in the book of Matthew, it's interesting, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable. A parable of a king's son who's having a wedding. These invitations are sent out. Go a couple more chapters into chapter 25. Jesus tells another parable of the ten young virgins waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. 
Just after that, in Matthew 26, I think we see another allusion back to, to the song where Mary of Bethany comes and she anoints Jesus with spikenard that, that fills the house. It's clear in John chapter 12 where the same language of Song of Songs 1 is used, but if you're still open to Song of Songs uh, chapter 1 in, in verse uh, 12, it says, While the king was on his couch, my, my nard, or spikenard, gave forth its fragrance. Matthew 26 and, and John chapter 12, the, the anointing by uh, Mary of, of Jesus is, is hearkening back to that passage. Mary rightly understood Jesus to be the bridegroom. Or if you, you look at the Gospel of John, uh, we sang of it just before the service. What was the very first miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry? It was at a wedding where he himself assumes the place of the bridegroom in providing the wine. Then in John chapter 3, right at the end of that chapter, when uh, John the Baptist is, is speaking about his ministry in relation to Christ, and people are wondering, is he the one to come? Is he the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm just the best man, the one who has the bride. He's the bridegroom. And then we turn over into John chapter 4 where Jesus comes up to a well, a place in the Old Testament where uh, people tend to meet wives. Think of uh, Moses and Zipporah. Think of Jacob. Think of um, Abraham's servant who was sent ahead to find a bride for Isaac. Over and over we see this, this bridal well sort of theme. And then Jesus, in John chapter 4, he meets a, a sinful woman who he offers living water a language that's actually taken directly from Song of Songs chapter 4. I think she's presented as something of a type, something of a picture of the kind of bride who Christ comes seeking. The kind of bride whom Christ comes to cleanse. And then fast forward again to John chapter 12. As I said, the, the Song of Songs uh, sort of uh, allusions in the Gospels continue. Or you look at the book of Hebrews, which is showing us how all of the Old Testament is, is pointing forward to and fulfilled in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it applies those words of Psalm 45 to Jesus, making him the divine bridegroom. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of the church in Corinth as being betrothed to one husband to be presented as a pure virgin to Christ. That fits with those words that we read from Ephesians 5. All this to say that the Song of Songs is found within a book, the Bible, that has a rather significant marital theme running throughout it. In fact, um, one pastor and theologian says in his book on marriage and the mystery of the gospel, it is not as though marriage is simply one theme among many in the Bible, but is perhaps the wraparound concept for the whole Bible within which all of those other themes find their place. And so this song, as a scriptural song, must find its place within that great wraparound concept of the Bible, that of God wedding a people to his son. In that sense, we might call this song the soundtrack of redemption. Luke 24 um, tells us that all of Scripture refers to Christ. It uh, speaks of him in the law and the prophets and the writings. Jesus tells those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so we must not read this book in a way that ignores the Christocentric impulse of the whole Bible. 
I think this is also why it's important to read the Bible along with those who've gone before us. Many today have little respect for the, the history of interpretation of this book, but if we were to survey the church fathers like Gregory or, or Bede, or um, if we, we were to, to look at the medievals like Bernard of Clairvaux, or the Puritans like Richard Sibbs or, or John Owen, or if we were to, to look at the letters of, of Samuel Rutherford, or skip ahead to the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurge, what we would see as we looked uh, at all of these across nearly 2,000 years of church history is a great deal of, of unanimity regarding what this book is about. Christ. And I don't think they were being innovative, but you see that the same thing in the rabbis before them. And we see the same thing in the history of Christian hymnody and the way that this book is used. You see it in the way that the New Testament itself uses this song, picking up on the, the bridegroom theme, having places where the, the song is, is evoked, like John 4, the woman at the well, where, where Christ offers her living water. John 12, the spike guard of Mary. Matthew 25, the arrival of the bridegroom and the day of his wedding, which seems to parallel what we read in Song of Songs 3, verses 6 to 11. The uh, book of Revelation Allusions to the song abound. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. The knocking at the door sounds a lot like what we find in Song of Songs chapter 5. The bridegroom coming and seeking um, communion with his bride. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, those opening verses, as it describes the bride, does so in the same language of Song of Songs chapter 6. That's not to mention the, the biblical theological themes that are, that are woven throughout this book. You think of the, the garden and vineyard imagery that is replete throughout it. The, the shepherd theme, the royal king, the, the city of Jerusalem, or the covenant refrain, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. comes up three times in the book, which, which sounds a lot like that a biblical refrain, that, that covenant formula that is, is so frequently repeated throughout the Bible, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You see, biblical theological themes abound throughout this book. Which leads us to the uh, third point, that this song is a Solomonic song. This is perhaps the most important of its biblical theological themes in the very first verse of the book, we're cued into the fact that this song, which is a scriptural song, is of Solomon, who is referred to in verse 4 as the king, who dwells in Jerusalem, who is called a shepherd in verses 7 and 8, because that's how the king is designated in the Bible. Um, he's explicitly referred to in chapter 3, Verse 11, go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon on the day of his wedding. Again, in chapter 8, it says, My vineyard is for you, O Solomon. We're reminded from beginning to end that this song is Solomonic. It's about David's son. I think that's something of a key to understanding this book. We've already made mention of, of the garden imagery that is replete throughout it. A reference to vines and, and vineyards and flowers and buds, very consummation in uh, chapters 4 and 5 is referred to as an entrance into the garden that once was locked and now is opened. Biblical theologian uh, James Hamilton is right to say that the Song of Songs is the closest we get to the Garden of Eden in the rest of the Bible. The poetry that is evocative of these biblical theological themes transports us, as it were, to Eden. Remember, we 
That's how the Bible is bookended with this marital theme within which the other themes find their place. One of those themes is that of a garden. We find ourselves in Genesis 2 and 3 and then are, are kicked out of until we find ourselves in that garden city of Revelation. And the way that we find ourselves returning there is through the arrival of the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, overcoming all of the alienation that brought us east of Eden. That promise that's first given in Genesis 3.15, it, it unfolds throughout the Bible, narrowing to, to the line of Shem and then to Abram, who God makes a covenant with, and tells him in Genesis 17.6 that kings will come from him. And then Judah in uh, Genesis 49 is, is told, his, his great-grandson, that the scepter will not depart from Judah, leading us to expect from the tribe of Judah a royal son. Which, of course, we find we come to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, and David of the tribe of Judah is told that his son will have an eternal kingdom. And that son is not Solomon, but Solomon, the son of David, is one in a, a long line of, of types leading to Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah who would come from his line. Jesus, who is explicitly referred to in Matthew chapter 12 as one greater than Solomon, who would build a greater temple, who would bring greater peace, who would possess greater wisdom. Solomon, as a son of David, is one in a long line of Christ figures, a a symbol of the continuation of God's covenant promise, part of that unfolding fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and bring us back into God's presence, bring us back into the garden. This is not allegory. This is, this is typology. This is not skipping over the historical details of, of the song, the, the historical context of the song. It's recognizing the historical context as that of David's royal son with whom the covenant of grace is bound up and interpreting all of these biblical theological themes within the unfolding drama of redemption. To read the song this way is to recognize that as poetry, this song is evocative. It, it points us beyond Solomon to a hero who is typified in this book, whose beauty is typified in this book, whose loving care for his bride is typified, foreshadowed in this book. As we all know, Solomon's marriage, or rather his marriages, fell far short of the ideal that is described in this song. In fact, we might read this book as, as, as a kind of later repudiation of his polygamy, describing the way that things should have been and the way that things one day will be when Eden-like intimacy between God and his bride and this Eden-like setting will come through the arrival of one greater than Solomon. This book is far more than a manual for marriage. Uh, This book is far more than a detailed description of Solomon's love life. It is a poetic uh, description of of the Eden-like intimacy that will exist between Solomon's son, the royal bridegroom, and his bride. That Eden-like intimacy, that love beyond compare is the greatest thing that we could ever contemplate. It is the greatest theme that we could ever sing of. And that's precisely what we're told 
in the title of this book. Notice the book is not in the body of the, of the poem. It's not called the Song of Solomon, but it's called the Song of Songs. Meaning it is the greatest song. It is the superlative song. It is the song of which nothing better could be sung. Of the 1,005 songs that the Bible tells us Solomon wrote, this is his number one hit. Of all the songs in the Bible, the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, the song of Deborah, the song of Hannah, the song of the vineyard, the song of Habakkuk, the Psalms of David, the, the songs that we read in Luke chapters 1 and 2 of Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon, of all the songs in the Bible, this song is the only one that is called the superlative song. The same way that we speak of the most holy place as the holy of holies. The same way that we speak of the greatest king and, and greatest lord as lord of lords and king of kings. In that same way, the opening verse of this song, the, the opening verse of this book, uses the Hebrew superlative to describe this song. Jonathan Edwards said the name by which Solomon calls it confirms that this is more than an ordinary love song, but is a divine song of divine authority. Edwards says we read in 1 Kings 4 that Solomon's songs were 1,005, but this he calls the Song of Songs. That is the most excellent of all his songs, for it was a song of the most excellent subject, treating the love, union, and communion between Christ and his bride, of which marriage and conjugal love is but a shadow. So there is a tendency among modern scholars in, in a um, a, a well-intentioned desire to be relevant in our age of sexual chaos, not only to ignore the history of interpretation that sees this book as speaking of gospel realities, but also a tendency to, to rush past the introductory verse of 1 verse 1, which calls it the greatest song. Well, just think about it. If, if this is the greatest song in the Bible, would it not be odd for it only to be about the marriage bed? That, of course, is not to say that it has nothing to do with the marriage bed or that it has nothing to say to the sexual chaos all around us, but, but this song is in the Bible. This song is about David's son. This song is about a garden. This song is, is therefore, about more than, than just a, a manual for marriage, but that it's about the union and communion that will exist forever in that Eden-like garden between the son of David and his bride. And again, it's not just a song that's given to, to inform, but it's a song that's given to draw us in. It's, it's a song that the Spirit is, is calling us, as in Revelation 22, and that, that uh, passage we heard in our call to worship, it's, it's calling our hearts to join in singing. Uh, much like Psalm 45, it's, it's a song about the divine bridegroom. It's, it's a song about the greatest love story. It's a song after which every good love story and every good love song that's ever been penned is patterned. Because the feelings of love and, and the, the beauty of marriage that God has given as gifts are intended as signs of something greater. Which is exactly what the book ends by telling us. If you uh, skip ahead to Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, as it's sort of wrapping up the whole message of the book, it says in Song of Songs 8, verses 6 and 7. 
That love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are, are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Encapsulating the message of this whole book that marital love signifies greater heavenly realities that human love points beyond itself to the Lord of love who unites his people to himself in marital bliss. And it's precisely in that way that this book then has everything to say to the sexual chaos all around us. You see, the the scholars who who want to make this book only a a manual for the marriage bed um, end up going into battle underarmed and unequipped because they miss the fact that what makes the sexual chaos all around us so blasphemous is that it ruins the gospel story that marital love is meant to tell and that this song sings so clearly. Not only is this book a song, not only is it a scriptural song, the Solomonic song, the superlative song that that sings the most excellent of all subjects, but as we look at the gospel content of this song, it confronts the various distortions of marital love that, that we see in the world around us and that we see even in the church. As the last thing we want to consider this morning is that this song is a sapiential song. Sticking with the alliteration, sapiential means having to do with wisdom. It means uh, informing the way that we live, much like the book of, of Proverbs or other wisdom literatures, which is the sort of the, the, the um, Old Testament section in which we find this book. Uh, much like those other books, Ecclesiastes and, and Proverbs, it, it teaches us about life. It teaches us about the beauty of love. Um, It teaches us that that marital intimacy is a very good thing given by God, not a dirty thing to be ashamed of. As it it takes this, it it exalts it to the high status of of picturing the very love of Christ. And yet, even as as it teaches us all of these things, it also reminds us that marital intimacy is to be reserved for marriage. Um, There's a as I said, a sort of a progression throughout this book of, of anticipation in those early chapters with, with restrained imagery. But then after the consummation, there is a, a heightening of this imagery. And so this book teaches us not only about the beauty of love, but it, it teaches us specifically about marital love. And that's why there is that refrain throughout the book. Not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Three times throughout this book, that phrase is... Repeated, sort of in the same way that you might watch a, a video of, of a science experiment on YouTube or, or something, and then maybe it, it flashes across the screen. Do not try this at home. The bride throughout this book is, is warning the daughters of Zion, do not try this outside of marriage. Because as you see throughout the book, marriage is covenantal. The intimacy that takes place in marriage is a renewal of that covenant, uh, much like what we do in corporate worship. We, we come to have our, our covenant with God renewed as, as he reminds us of his promises to us in the gospel. And we are reminded also of our obligations to him. Same thing is going on. Where even as the bride and groom have vowed on the wedding day to give themselves to each other freely, fully, faithfully, and fruitfully, uh, marital love is a, a renewal and, and rekindling of those vows. It is a, a reenactment of the promise, an enfleshment of the promise. Which is why sex outside of marriage is so unthinkable in the biblical world. 
Because marital intimacy, by definition, is covenant renewal. And so sex outside of marriage in the Bible is, is, is not sex, it's fornication. The Bible uses a different word for it. As wisdom, this book warns us not to kindle the flames before we're able to contain the fire. And as such, it warns us about the parameters of relationships outside of marriage. It warns us about modesty and the way that it, it helps us not to awaken love before the proper time. It, it warns us about pornography and the way that it not only kindles a flame prematurely, but also miseducates young men and women about the purpose and nature of sexual intimacy. In the Bible, it's self-giving, where the bride and the groom and the song derive pleasure from serving the other, but the sexual education program of the world teaches us to be self-serving. This book teaches us about marriage as a societal concern. Where in chapters, uh, chapter 3, others are present at the wedding. It reminds us of the presence of these daughters of Zion throughout the book, that we have an obligation to look after each other and the vows that we make or the decisions that we make. Marriage is a, a societal concern. It's not a, a private affair. The pursuit of purity is not a, a private affair, but something that others have an obligation to protect, as we see in chapter 8, verses 8 to 14, with, with the brothers looking after the purity of their sister. Reminder for us as families, reminder for us as moms and dads, to be speaking to our children about the things that they will be exposed to. The world is not slow to seek to catechize our children about these things. In fact, the world around us has devoted a whole month to that. And so here, God, God gives us a book in which we might re-catechize them. In which we might do so even in the safe context of, of, of the worship of the Christian church. This book, as wisdom, teaches us about marriage as between one man and one woman. We could say more about monogamy and the problem of, of Solomon's polygamy, but that's, that's part of, of why we must take this book as something more than just an historical account of Solomon's love life. He understands the realities of which he writes poetically as going beyond himself, and, and insofar as he speaks of that idealized union, he repudiates his polygamy. Nor is it incidental that the union that we see in, in, in this book at the center of the Bible is, is a differentiated male and female union teaching us about God's plan for marriage. Teaching us about God's plan of redemption. There is unity in diversity as God and man are joined together, who, two who are different becoming one. You see how this book arms us in the battles of our day. It teaches us about how marriage as covenantal requires commitment, and therefore it speaks to us about divorce. It said in chapter 8, set me as a seal on your heart. This book speaks to all of the questions that we have in our day. It, it speaks to us from a gospel perspective, where both the, the beauty of marital intimacy as a gift from God and the heavenly reality that it depicts are taken seriously. It speaks of marital intimacy in a way that views it as holy and sacred, not just in what it typifies, but also in the way that it speaks of it. In language that is couched in symbolism rather than crass terms, a masking innuendo from younger ears, respecting the holiness of the marriage bed. These are just a handful of the lessons that we learn about marriage from the Song of Songs. 
But the best thing that we learn about marriage from the song is that it is pen ultimate. Meaning it is not the ultimate thing, but is a flame of that divine love that lasts forever. Not only do we see that in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we also see that at the very ending of the book, where the very last verse of the very last chapter ends with a yearning that is unfulfilled. Reminding us of the fact that marriage itself points to something greater, union with our beloved Savior. And so in that way, this book teaches us not to idolize marriage. It has a message, not only for those who are married, but for singles, for divorcees, for widows, for children, because it teaches us about the love of Christ for his bride. In pursuing her despite her imperfections, in treasuring her above all others, in cleansing her despite her sin. That's one of the main themes you see over and over throughout this book. So it has a message also for those who have failed by way of of infidelity, or by way of pornography, or by way of unnatural sexual desires. Or those who have been failed by others who were supposed to protect them. Others who, who have taken advantage of them or who have not loved you faithfully. And teaches us to to lift our eyes above the the frustrations and and pains of this life to look to our heavenly bridegroom. To look past the scars of of past mistakes and and hurts and look to the scars of Christ that will take all of ours away to look beyond the unfulfilled longings that we have to the one who will fulfill all of those longings perfectly. That's the message of this book. It's a message for saints. It's a message for sinners. It's a message for divorcees. It's a message for newlyweds. It's a message for widows, a message for children. They were loved by Christ, the greater than Solomon. From heaven came and sought you to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought you. And for your life, he died. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ has come and sought us to be his holy bride, that he is the greater than Solomon, the son of David, who came to purchase us with his own blood. We thank you for that story is told from Genesis to Revelation, even sung right here in the middle of your word, that we might be taken up into the drama and sing it too. Realize that true religion is marital in nature. That true religion is not just a system of doctrinal affirmations or a pattern of dutiful obedience, but at the heart of everything that we do as a person to whom we are joined in intimate, sweet communion. Lord, we recognize the great gift that we have been given, being joined to your Son. We pray that that even um, contemplating a book like this would not only uh, cause us to love Christ more deeply, but would also help us to understand even the um, gravity of sexual sin that distorts this gospel picture. We pray for the young people among us. We pray for the world around us, for the sexual confusion and chaos, that a book even like this one would arm us in the battle in which we find ourselves with the devil, 
the world, and even our own sinful flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.